So would you mind starting off by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, a little bit about AlgoPay, and a little bit about your experience at USC? Yeah, so um, my name is Anna Mersey. I'm the founder of AlgoPay, and we um, connect cash economies to the global economy. And the way we do that is by building digital financial products for um, cash-based consumers who are typically unbanked. Um, we're doing that in the Middle East market. We've selected Iraq as the geography where we're really doubling down right now. So the, the key way that we serve our consumers is with a digital debit card. And so for most of these consumers, this is the very first time that they're actually able to buy online. So imagine being cash-based, but tech-savvy, loving video games, but you can't actually purchase anything on the internet. Um, they're able to do that with the Algo card. Um, and while I was at USC, I, I actually didn't study business. I was a Middle East studies and Arabic um, major and minor um, with a little bit of poli-sci sprinkled in there. Awesome. All right, so if you could talk a little bit about kind of your, like your path at USC and then kind of how you came together with this idea to start AlgoPay and if you had any team members and partners in this, just kind of the path of kind of from where you are now, um, back when you were at USC. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, um, I, I took Middle East studies in Arabic for a very specific reason. I had, I probably spent around the last decade working with migrant workers and refugees from the region. Um, I, I have a huge social justice bend and have always been really heavily involved in digital activism. Um, so going back to 2013, when the group Anonymous was really active in things like the Arab Spring. And so I had a lot of um, connection to the region just through the activism I was doing and kind of the way I had glorified these like revolutionaries and this like very passionate population. And I wanted to have a more formal background and kind of, you know, have some sort of authority in my space. And so I, I took Middle East studies thinking that I was gonna go into like NGO work or work for the government, something along those lines, potentially work in academia. I had done a lot of research in the past, um, but AlgoPay actually happened really organically um, through my studies. So um, it's slightly a long story, but starting from when I was learning Arabic, I was put in kind of a co-tutoring program through, through my um, course program where basically I would get paired with a refugee who didn't know English, who was based in either Syria, Iraq, um, or maybe they were relocated to another country in the Middle East. And I, on the other side, um, I didn't know Arabic, they didn't know English. And so um, we, were, we were connected and basically had to teach each other one another's language, which was really interesting. Um, it, it basically started as like holding up a picture with like an orange on it and being like, orange, got it? And then, and then eventually, after a few weeks, we could speak in full sentences and really communicate with one another. Um, and so through that program, I got to know a lot of people on the other side of the world really intimately. Um, and just the humility of learning a language alongside somebody else um, really big, breaks down a lot of barriers and, and makes you know, that relationship really ripe for openness and, and becoming close quickly. Um, I learned through that program that a lot of the people who I was a co-student with, um, they weren't able to access local job opportunities because of work permit restrictions for refugees in the Middle East. Um, a lot of them being relocated, um, a lot of countries to kind of um, pad their economies and their employment market with the massive influx of refugees that came in. So countries like Lebanon and Jordan, they had actually restricted refugees from entering the workforce. And so you had people who had master's degrees in STEM education and um, very, very technical skill sets who were, could not be employed locally. 
And so I started just connecting kind of friends and family of mine um, to the students that I was working with for one-off jobs. Um, so I, I had a number of friends at SC who had like various tech companies and cool projects. I was like, oh, I bet you need a graphic designer or I bet you need somebody to code something for you and I can connect you to Motaz over here who has, you know, a master's in CS. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. But this was right when I think Los Angeles as an ecosystem started really focusing on the refugee and migration crisis. Um, and, and a lot of creative agencies started feeling really progressively inclined and really wanted to get involved um, with their money in the cause. And one way to do that is by hiring refugees. And so when we started getting inbound from creative agencies in LA, for this talent, we knew it was a good time to build the platform. So I actually, I partnered with a friend of mine at USC who knew startups way better than I did um, and kind of had him run the business angle. Meanwhile, I had some of our freelancers actually build the platform that they ended up working on and, 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 the, and it grew into this really kind of beautiful ecosystem for remote work for migrant workers that was region-wide. Um, in the Middle East. We touched every country except for um, Iran and Yemen. And so it was pretty vast. And we ended up having a few thousand freelancers because word of mouth was so significant um, because we were one of the few really reliable employers for, for migrants at the time. And, um, but, but as all of those exciting things were happening, um, payments was still really hard. And the, the most important thing about your job is that you're getting paid for it, right? And we couldn't reliably get money to our freelancers um, without taking a serious hit in fees. So we were spending, we were using Western Union um, because none of our freelancers had bank accounts. They had never had bank accounts. Like this wasn't something that they were interested in or really had access to. Um, and so we, um, we were using Western Union to get the money to them and paying like 20% in fees some days. Um, and not to mention this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so not to mention, this is a really vulnerable population. They're not living at even like a stable residence and they're making thousands of dollars and picking, up, picking it up in cash at night and then carrying it home. Like that's just not safe. And so we built AlgoPay just as like an internal tool for us to use and to make our freelancers lives easier. And then um, a few really interesting things started happening about, um, at the, in terms of a timeline, this is about a year and a half into that remote work platform. So this is May of 2018, um, right actually when I was getting ready to graduate from SC, we noticed that a number of our freelancers started to hack the platform essentially by bringing friends and family on board and then hiring them for jobs and not actually conducting a job and just sending money to them. So they were using our platform to, to make money transfers instead of using like a traditional payment tool. And there's no better user feedback than you can get compared to, you know, the ways that they hack your platform or the ways that they use your service that you didn't intend them to. Um, and so at that moment, it was really obvious that we should, we should be building a payments company, not a remote work company. Um, and so, um, that's kind of the natural journey in terms of how AlgoPay got started. And I think, retracing those steps and going back to like that tutoring program that I started in just to help me learn Arabic. Um, all of that goes back to my Middle East Studies degree at USC and kind of the work of, of that program. So that's an amazing story. Um, it's always so exciting just to hear about um, the really interesting ways that companies come about, whether by intention or without. Um, so how are you guys able to offer um, money transferring without fees? Yeah, so um, everything that's done within the app um, is actually just data moving, not actually money. So once somebody deposits funds, um, that money is stored within AlgoPay 
And if you send that money to another person um, who is also an AlgoPay user, the data just changes on who owes who what, um, but not necessarily, that money doesn't actually switch accounts. Um, that's kind of the nature of the way we set up accounts. Um, but I think too, a lot of legacy systems work using really antiquated technology and really antiquated partnerships. And so those partnerships just naturally incur higher exchange rates, they incur higher fees, they have slower processing time because it is older technology. And two, a lot of the incumbents in the space know that they are some of the only key players and they're able to charge those fees without you know, facing much, much competition. And so we've seen Western Union have the capacity to lower fees in other emerging markets and they've just chosen not to in, in our market is, is what we believe. Thank you. Um, so one thing that I think Andrew and I see around USC a lot, we're at a venture studio and we're talking to a bunch of students, is many people have ideas and I think a very difficult thing is to realize when it's a good time to bring your idea. And so if you could talk a little bit about that journey that you went on, whether it was with the tutoring when you started kind of reaching out to people, that moment or something that you are, when you decided that you know this was something you wanted to bring to life, this is what you were going to do after college, and just talk a little bit about some of like the change that you had to make, yeah, that commitment, the commitment, the changes, the people, and so on. So yeah, yeah, I think by the time it got to the point of graduation, I was in so deep, like I really didn't have an option. I um, I was applying to accelerator programs, and I was looking at getting angel investments, and and we had this massive user base that we were really serving on a daily basis. And so at that point, it had, I'm sure as a lot of entrepreneurs can identify with it, it had really become a part of my identity and, and what I was doing. Um, I, I had so naturally become enthralled with the product and the problem that we were solving that it was just taking up most of my time, senior and junior year of college. Um, and that in, a, in and of itself is a big sacrifice, but one that came really naturally because if you find something that you're really obsessed with, you just get kind of sucked in. Um, but in terms of even getting to that point and um, like making the step from idea to actual execution, um, I think a lot of a lot of what I've seen in terms of people failing to do that is they they may, they really overcomplicate it. They think that they need to get like a domain and they need a really cool logo and they want to incorporate and they they almost overcompensate by putting in all these formal processes before they even know if people what want what they've what, what they're thinking about. And so I think the best way to get started is to test it on the smallest scale possible. Um, and not through surveys because customers lie all the time. They have no idea what they want. The only thing that will tell you what they want is what they actually do when something's in their hands. Um, and so the quickest way to test it and, and like the, the quickest way that we tested it was um, we knew a guy with a skill. I had a friend who needed the skill and I connected them and the job was successful and the guy got rehired. And that was, that took almost no effort from me. And it was more about watching the process and watching how the customer interacted with the service we were providing. Um, there's a really interesting case study that um, a professor at USC told our class about, which was like, how do you test whether or not um, students will buy discount sushi? Um, and like whether or not that is like an interesting model for like increasing sushi sales. And they had like 20 minutes to come up with an MVP. And everyone had these like rocket launch pages and these things like, like who knows what they came up with in 20 minutes. But the professor had a much better idea, which 
was, no, we're just going to go down to like campus center and we're going to put half price off stickers, mom sushi and see who buys it. And lo and behold, nobody wants half price sushi because they assume it's expired. Um, and that's like a really quick way to test it and see, um, if people will do what you want them to. And it costs virtually nothing and it isn't technical. Um, and so just thinking on the lowest possible scale, the most hacky way you can, um, like what is the quickest way you can test this without involving any technology and without spending considerable resources and that'll usually tell you where to go. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, are you able to operate AlgoPay and the peer-to-peer uh, the -peer hiring network without funding or did you have funding? Um, so the, um, the money, the, the, excuse me, the remote work platform was not funded. We were making considerable money and so that let us bring on like volunteers and kind of for ourselves to a degree um, but it didn't really give us any like resources to really expand the platform significantly and when we really started to, to grow we started losing a lot of money because of those money transfer fees so it wasn't sustainable at all and when we did go out for venture money um, the feedback which was very correct was that the the gig economy market the remote work market is way too saturated you're not going to be able to, to leave like a really serious footprint here and and come up with something better to do. Um, and so, and I totally think that's right. There are so many freelancing platforms out there trying to help refugees and, and they're doing a great job on the scale that they're working at. And I really don't know how much room there is for a, like a major platform to come in. And if a giant wants to do it, there's Upwork, Fiverr, 99designsfreelancer.com, Top Talent, Della, like the list goes on and on. So, so we didn't raise money for that platform. Um, with AlgoPay, we did raise angel money in the beginning. Um, we raised around 300K of angel dollars, and then we went through an accelerator here in LA. We went through um, Techstars LA, and so they fund you as well. Um, and then we also received some impact funding um, just because of the goodwill of, of kind of the impact of what our product could, could accomplish. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It was, it was a cool experience. It, I think the coolest thing for us in terms of getting accepted into like an LA accelerator was that it was a very clear indicator that someone in the LA ecosystem was willing to take a bet on our consumer base and our market, which considering that we operate any rock is, is a really, um, really good signal for us. And, um, and just a really exciting indicator that, that minds are opening up about where emerging markets can, can really thrive. I was asking more about that, about um, AlgoPay operating in Iraq and about um, developing a company in America in a nation that uh, not everyone is super familiar with. Yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting. There's a lot of different angles where it impacts us. I'd say from a fundraising perspective, it makes it really clear who could be our partners and who couldn't be um, because people either get it or they don't. And, and the people who do get it, it's instant synergy, instant brainstorming. They can think of multiple use cases for the product and, and just the fire is really there. Um, for most of our fundraising, we have had to go into the region um, and, and raise money from more strategic stakeholders who have either interacted with our economy or are just familiar with the way that the region works. Um, from a hiring perspective, doing something that is so unique really attracts the people who align with it with that specific mission. And so there are a number of folks in LA who are really interested in fintech. They really see the power of payment technology and, and maybe they have a personal connection to the region. Maybe they had worked in the region or so, saw something on the news that they thought was unjust and they just wanted to get involved in this part of the world. And in LA, there aren't that many opportunities to do so. And so we are a very natural fit for them. So 
leveraging our mission to find the right types of talent who can really get on board um, is something that has been valuable. Um, and then from an operations perspective, um, half of our team is in LA and half of our team is in Iraq. Um, so we, we do hire folks locally who do everything from um, keeping an eye on the local ecosystem, letting us know what business developments are taking place that we should be aware of, to um, running our deposit networks, to running localized customer service, leading community events. So they really keep our pulse on the local ecosystem. And in terms of our LA team, um, we I think we do a really good job at staying in tune with the user, with kind of being willing to put in odd hours, knowing that consumer finance doesn't really sleep, especially not when our users have a different daytime than we do. Um, and, and that's just a sacrifice that I'm really grateful that the team has made. Thank you. One other question we have here is, we're talking about the entrepreneur journey, where it kind of goes, where you have this great idea and you're super excited about it. And then it kind of goes like a little U-curve. And then very quickly it hits and you realize that not be as feasible or something may come up and then you'll kind of hit this rock bottom where something could go on and it's really bad and you want to give up and you don't think that you can continue it or you want to move on and then finally stuff continues to work out um on that model of the entrepreneurship journey if you do identify with that if you could talk a little bit about it or just some hardships that you went along the way some blocks that you had to get over and kind of ways that you got over yeah, I'd say in terms of identifying with the U-curve, I don't even see it as like a U-curve. I see it as like a, like it, it really never ends. And I have mentors who are way that, that have much more established companies and are more seasoned CEOs that still stay up all night because of something that's going wrong. Um, so it really never ends. Um, and that's just the nature of doing something that is, you know, a first for a lot of markets. Um, in terms of times that roadblocks have happened, I mean, there's so many all the time. And, and for, for us specifically, we're working in a really nascent market where what we're doing is a new user behavior, it's a new corporate behavior. Um, there aren't even serious regulations in order that, that can regulate us in a nuanced way. And so it's, when, when there are so many firsts, there are so many challenges. And the best thing that you can do in, in those moments is just really care about what you're learning and not whether or not you got the answer right or wrong. Um, so for example, before we came to this debit card solution, we entered the market thinking that peer-to-peer -peer remittances was really where the money was at. And this is what everyone said they wanted. And this was how they were using our payment system when it was on the freelancing platform. And look at this geography where all these friends and family live and they want to send money back and forth and they can and they're using this thing called the wallet system and it's in cash. And oh my God, there, there's so much to be done here. And we launched that and no one used it. And, and we, we were in the middle of the Techstars program trying to get people to deposit money um, for this payment system and no one was depositing money like no one was doing what, what they said they would do no one was like it was it was insane and um, And during that time it was like, okay, what are quit instead of kind of getting down and being like, oh, 
this isn't going to work, this, like, this solution, just this failing, we stayed really focused on the problem and didn't really care how we solved it. And so the second P2P didn't work, it was like, okay, what about payroll distribution? What about integrations with freelancing platforms? You know, we've had some inbound about spending online. What are different ways that we can facilitate online purchases? And we just, we saw this problem where cash economies are disconnected from the global economy, and we just tested a bunch of different ways to solve that problem. And if we were, if we were stuck on the solution, it probably would have been like a single u-curve because we would have just stopped at the bottom and then our life would have gone better because we'd have much more like stable careers and we would have left the startup realm but but that just that's what happens if you're obsessed with a solution and not obsessed with a problem and so um just in summation staying uh, keeping kind of our our egos down so that we weren't really hurt when a solution didn't work made those those times a lot easier and and it really fueled a lot of creativity and a lot of kind of um, a, a lot of fun testing that engaged, that got us closer to our users, that gave us more insight about the market, and just directed us, you know, to the solution that we figured out today. Absolutely. Um, how does Alipay make money? So um, we originally charge. So we charge transaction fees right now. We charge um, 2% on all deposits and then 1% every time a transfer, or not a transfer, every time a transaction happens, like an online purchase. Um, but we're changing that model now. Um, the reason is for, transa for transactional fees, you're making money on the user. And we want to move towards a SaaS fee where users pay us five bucks a month because then instead of making money on them, they're paying us to serve them. And we think that is much more aligned with our relationship with our user base. Um, in addition, we're looking at some really interesting affiliate partnerships and ref share opportunities with e-commerce companies that have um, cash on delivery users that would prefer to have those users spending digitally. Um, and in addition, the data that we're collecting on like millennial payments in Iraq is really valuable to a lot of major tech companies that have interest in entering this market, but just don't have the data to do it um, effectively. And so we're also looking at revenue opportunities with bringing in some of those larger companies into the ecosystem and, you know, how we can co-monetize that. Is it possible for, um, and I actually, I just want to say, I, I think that's so interesting how you guys are changing your payment system to align with the rhetoric of the company. Um, but I wanted to ask as well, if someone lives in America and they want to send money to either their friends or family back home in Iraq, are they able to do so using AlgoPay? Um, so actually, yes, but not through AlgoPay directly. So something we found is that a lot of people in the Middle East have PayPal accounts that they receive money into, but that they can't cash out of. And this could be for a multitude of reasons. Um, a reason that, that really hit home for us is that our users felt, um, our users who freelance online felt a lot of shame around telling their clients that they had to be paid on Western Union. So they would just like create a fake VPN, get a PayPal account in Iraq, and then accept payments there, knowing that they could never cash out just so that they could get the client um, and, and not force the client to use Western Union. And so for kind of a multitude of very personal reasons, our users have money in PayPal that they have never been able to cash out because PayPal doesn't work in the Middle East. Um, so what we did to kind of overcome that hurdle for our users is we just built tools on top of PayPal. 
and made it possible to um, transfer PayPal balance directly to AlgoPay. So now users that have money stored in PayPal can cash those funds out to, through Algo and either withdraw them using our network or spend it online. And a part of that now means that our users who do have friends or family in the U.S. can now receive PayPal transfers from those family members um, because they transfer via PayPal and then our users can cash out. That's fantastic. Um, so another thing is, where do you see AlgoPay going? Like in the next five years, you foresee this something as being a long-term solution just for Iraq? Do you think that this could be something that could be used all over the Middle East? Or just a little bit to hear about I mean, the current trajectory of AlgoPay? Yeah, we, when we first built AlgoPay um, as separate from the freelancing platform, the first thing I did was conduct exit interviews with every freelancer we had. So this was about 30 days of one-on-one -on -one interviews, um, around 20 minutes with hundreds of freelancers. Um, and doing that, I got a really intimate picture of what the, fin the financial life of our users looked like. And, and not just for Iraqis, but for people who were region-wide. And so with that insight, we built AlgoPay at its core to be cross-border and to not be tied to a single geography within the Middle East. And so we do think that the solution expands far beyond Iraq. Um, the, the, what we're most excited about is the potential to serve as that payment bridge um, for digital companies that want to enter the Middle East and to really go deep in that. And so any company that is providing an e-commerce service in the region, any gig economy platform, any online service, any any U.S. digital company like Netflix or Spotify, we we really want to be the bridge that that helps them enter a market that's begging for them, and um, and I think we're we're thinking about it kind of one country at a time. So right now we're really focused on doing this in Iraq, um, and then recently we stumbled upon um, or built relationships with a number of e-commerce companies in Egypt that are really excited for us to enter their market to then do the same thing for their consumers. And then we also um, formed, have, are kind of in the early stages of forming relationships with companies that fit a similar profile in Algeria. And so we see kind of a path to, to entering new markets and new countries in the region, but right now we're doing it in Iraq. We're figuring out how do you scale these e-commerce partnerships and these affiliate partnerships, and how do you effectively bring a Western company, um, a company services into this ecosystem, and then we plan to replicate that. Fantastic. That's great, thank you. Yeah, so if there's any sort of closing advice, any kind of sentiment or um, story or anecdote you wanna share with uh, any current entrepreneurs who are still in college, um, We'd love to hear. Yeah, um, I would say that the most important thing when you're first getting started, um, when you're first starting out, especially if you are a first-time founder, is surrounding yourself with really good advice and um, really good mentors. Um, there's a lot of bad advice out there, and if you don't have a filter for good versus bad advice, you won't know the difference. And so one strategy that um, still benefits me today that I'm really grateful that, um, that I took up in Algo's early days was look at the companies that you want to become, look at the founders that really inspire you, and figure out, you know, what podcast, blog, Twitter account did, were they active on in their early days and figure out what they said they were doing during those times and what people they were surrounding themselves with at that time and then get in touch with those people. Um, I think that, or, or people who fit that profile, um, I think that's one kind of a, a shoo-in way 
to make sure you're getting good advice. And then over time, you'll develop much stronger pattern recognition for good versus bad advice. But just making sure that you start to hone that filter early and that you surround yourself with the right people early, I think is really critical. All right. So to spin that with you, great podcast that you do or something that you recommend current USC students or us to read or just something that you think definitely played an important role in you starting on and building and committing to that. Yeah, a podcast that really inspires me and that just kind of fires me up is How I Built This. Um, I think like everyone's heard of. Uh, one of my favorite specific podcast episodes ever is the 20 Minute VC episode with the um, CEO of Superhuman. Um, he gets really deep into like quantifying product market fit and it's just super interesting in terms of thinking about how do you relate to your users and get data from your users um, when, when you realize you're actually serving a purpose for them. Um, in terms of books, there are so many. Um, read as many books as you can. Um, like for management, um, like Principles is a great book by Ray Dalio. Um, in my backpack right now, I'm looking at it, is 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which is like just a, it'll totally flip management on its head and kind of how you think of yourself as a leader. Um, books for when things get really hard like hard thing about hard things is a great one i reread it all the time i kind of pick up chapters um when i need them um because you don't need to read it chronologically um making a manager is a really good book um for me the first book that i read when i entered kind of this world i was coming in from deep academia and like in academia like the longer your emails are the better and that just isn't how tech operates and so I read Lean Startup and it was just like a great primer on like the mindset you should be having when you're entering this market and this industry. Um, yeah, I think those are all good ones. I was saying Lean Startup is actually one of the primary influencers of, of our curriculum at the Workshop Studio. Um, That's great. Yeah, so we're, we're a lean solution. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, it's super interesting. I, um, I give it to all of our newest team members when they come from industries that aren't in tech and, and everyone loves it. Anna, thank you so much. Yes, thank you for your time. Thank you for working with us and making this uh, video call work out. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Um, and feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or email. Um, if, if you know, there any follow-up questions come up, my email is just Anna at algopay.io. So I'm easy to find. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me and stay healthy. Stay, stay healthy. Stay healthy. Right on.